You are listening to LEC Online Church, a ministry of Lake Erie Church in Madison, Ohio. We are a multicultural, multi-generational Pentecostal church. For more information, please visit our website at lakeeriechurch.com. Now, we hope you enjoy today's message. We are starting today a journey that will take us through the entire summer. We're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians. We have prepared for you a handout with some notes. If you don't have one, if you will just raise your hand, some of us are right here in the front. We'll need some right here in the front, please. If you'll bring them down here to the front. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to spend... Um, the entire summer. Now, there'll be one or two uh, special uh, speakers that will come by, drop by, that will interrupt that flow. But there'll be 11, at least 11 of these weeks uh, that we're going to spend with the book of Corinthians. I've been doing the preparation for this since January when the Lord put this on my heart. And I wanted this to be... I wanted this to be a meaningful journey. This is not going to be a verse-by-verse, extemporaneous kind of preaching. In fact, I was talking with a a friend of mine at the camp meeting this past week, and uh, he was telling me that he had heard about a pastor friend of ours who started in the Gospel of Luke, And four years later, they're still going through Luke. I'm going to be honest with you, my ADD would kick in somewhere in that journey. But we're not going to go that far. But I do want to walk through this book in a way where we extrapolate out of it the major themes and things that Paul wanted us to know. Just a little bit of background information. The book of 1 Corinthians was written about the year 54 A.D. So about 54 years after uh, the death of Jesus. It has 16 chapters and contains 450, 435 verses. According to Google, which that's the gospel as you know. Google is everything and Google is right. It takes approximately one hour to read 1 Corinthians. So over these 11 weeks that we're going to do this, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I'm going to encourage you to read the book of 1 Corinthians as many times as you can. That's what I've been doing since January, reading 1 Corinthians over and over and over. I made two trips to Columbus and one to Cincinnati this week. I have heard 1 Corinthians read to me on my Bible app several times in those journeys. It only takes an hour to read the whole book. I'm going to encourage you to collect the notes that we give you every week and make sure that you take them home so that you have an opportunity. The Bible said... That the man who will survive the storm is the man who builds his house on a solid foundation. The Bible also says in the Psalms that the man 
who is blessed is the man, and, and by inference, woman, the man or woman who meditates on God's word day and night. God said to Joshua, you will be successful if you meditate on these words day and night. So my encouragement to you is to take advantage of this very unique experience. Not because I'm the speaker. Not because I'm the one that's doing the preaching. But because you are going to be exposed to the book of 1 Corinthians in a very real way. That you allow this book to become something more than just casual. We know a lot about how the church at Corinth got started because of what Susan just read to us. This was a part of the second missionary journey of Paul. He actually went to Corinth by himself. If you want to know how he got there, he had just left Athens and he went to Corinth by himself. You can read about that in, in chapter 17, 16 and 17 of the book of Acts. He, he stayed in Corinth approximately 18 months. In fact, the Bible says in verse 11 of what Susan read that he was there 18 months. It was longer than any other place that Paul stayed in his ministry. Now that would speak to me, and it does speak to me, that Paul saw Corinth as a significant place. In fact, I've provided a map for you. That's the next slide. I provided a map to show you where Corinth was. In the Roman Empire, Corinth was a passageway uh, right on the sea in the southern part of, of Greece. It was a metropolitan city, one of the largest cities of Paul's time with seaports and government prominence. The city had become a melting pot of people and cultures and religion. Something else I want you to know as we get started is that the church at Corinth was probably a network of house churches. It probably was not a large church like Lake Erie. It was probably a network of house churches. Some of the research that I did discovered that in this time many of these churches were held in people's houses Villas that would accommodate as many as 50 people, but others smaller. So you had this network of churches, these house churches, that were led by elders that Paul appointed over those churches. Now in August, we're starting some small groups here at Lake Erie that will have about 15 to 20 people in them. And then in January, we're rolling out a much larger small group strategy. But that, in essence, is what we have here. We have some small groups of people who were meeting together under the direction of an elder or some spiritual leadership that was appointed by the Apostle Paul. I wanted to know why Paul wrote the letter. And I would tell you that you will discover that in two places in the letter. In chapter 1, you will discover that Paul writes the letter because there were visitors to, came to Paul from someone's household named Chloe. Somebody named Chloe from their household had come to visit Paul and had shared with Paul about what was going on at Corinth. And so because of that report, 
he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Now, there's a subsequent second letter called 2 Corinthians. And, and I think if you read through 1 Corinthians, you will discover there probably was a third letter. And that third letter actually precedes the first letter that we have here in our Bible. That there probably was a third correspondence that came because Paul references in his writing, he said, according to the correspondence you previously sent to me. There's another, another reason that Paul wrote the letter in chapter 7. Paul wrote this letter because they had sent a letter to him with questions. They had questions about sexuality and about marriage. They had questions about spiritual order in the church. They had questions about church discipline. And so Paul writes his letter to them to respond to those questions. You may wonder why this is such an important message series or why I think this could be as important a message series as we've done since I've been your pastor. And I, I, I synthesize this into a statement that goes like this. The church at Corinth, like Lake Erie Church, was surrounded by a worldview that was constantly trying to squeeze it and silence the influence of the gospel. In fact, as I have been studying this for this series of messages, I have seen our church in so many places. In fact, I'll be disappointed if you read the book of 1 Corinthians and say to me, I don't see anything about Lake Erie in there. Because I just keep saying, that's us right there. That's us right there. That's the way we are. And, and I, I see that because I think that there's a lot in this book that is important. I, I made note of the fact in my study that one of the things that struck me about the Corinthian church was the degree to which worldly ideas and worldly practices were so widely accepted in the congregation. And what it says is what we know is that the world subtly and silently slips into the church and begins to influence the way that we think and the way that we function. If you had lived in Corinth around the time this letter was written, you would have noticed a city that had a very pronounced culture of self-importance. It was a city of upward mobility. Remember, the Roman Empire was at its crest, its zenith. People were doing well. The economy was strong. People were making money. They were affluent. The city of Corinth was bulging with people who saw themselves as important people. There was a, a strong worship of personality in the city of Corinth. And it got into the church. So much so that it threatened to destroy the church. Because they failed to realize how they were being influenced by the world. There was an appeal of blending the secular with the holy. And all of these are issues that we deal with in the world. 
and also here in our own church. So it was in the midst of this kind of world, this kind of society, full of its outward prosperity and its complete moral depravity that Paul came to the city of Corinth and built a team and started teaching the gospel that was so countercultural to the way the people in Corinth thought. The gospel that Paul is going to preach to them is so countercultural that they called him a madman. They belittled him for his skill of teaching and preaching. They had heard the best preachers, the best orators at Corinth, and Paul was just another preacher. And the gospel was so countercultural that it shook them at their very foundations. And it occurred to me. It occurred to me as I'm reading this book that when I look around, the unsaved people in my world are no different from the people in Corinth. What do I mean by that? The unsaved people that live in Lake County, the unsaved people that live in Ohio, they're just like the people of Corinth. They worship lots of different gods. They have sex with a lot of different people. They are polarized by their differences of opinion and they bicker with one another over the most trivial things. Just like in Corinth. Something I want you to notice is that Paul doesn't just criticize what these people are doing. It'd be easy just to write a letter and just blister them. And he does in chapter 7. I would say chapter 7 is the most strongly one. When he, said, when he hears about what's going on and the moral depravity that's taking place at Corinth. He's pretty strong in the way that he talks about them. But for the most part, Paul is very careful like a pastor. Not just to be a critic. But to offer principles from the scripture and the gospel that have eternal value and can be applied to the individual's need. I'll say that again. Paul doesn't just criticize. He reaches into the gospel to extract something out of the gospel, some principle out of the gospel that can be applied to the particular need so that somebody can grow out of that experience. Why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because Paul's approach means that this letter speaks to the people for whom he wrote it and it speaks to the people who will read it centuries later like you and I. Because the gospel transcends time and history. Get this. If it was true then, it's true now. Turn to your neighbor. Look them in the eye and say, if it was true then, it's true now. Hey, don't make any mistake. This isn't going to be one of those wafting on the angel wings kind of thing because the people at Corinth were a mess. This is one messed up crowd that calls Jesus their Lord. But so are the people in my neighborhood. So are the people that I work with. 
So are the members of our families. Messes. People with problems and difficulties. Struggling to make sense from the scripture as to how they're supposed to live their life. The tension between the secular, out there in the world, in your school, among your friends, and what you know to be true. What God's word says to be true. And the tension that you feel is the same way that Paul is talking about the church at Corinth. People are a mess. We're a mess. You're a mess. We're all messes. And the gospel speaks to each of us. And God loves us anyway. That's the thing. God loves us anyway. I think it's so important, and we try to do this a lot here, it's important that we talk about grace. Because grace is God helping us to be the person that we're supposed to be. It's God at work in me every day, helping me to be the man that He wants me to be, knowing that in my own self, in my own flesh, I will never be able to do that. So God says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to extend grace to you. I'm going to help you with your stuff. I'm going to help you navigate your mess. I'm going to help you with your fears, your anxieties, your temptations, your addictions, your struggles, your problems. I'm going to help you with all of that because I believe in you. I believe in what you can be. I believe in what I'm trying to do. In your life, I see a future for you that is bigger and better than you could possibly ever imagine. But there's a hook. And while it is greatly important, significantly important, that I talk about grace and make sure that you understand grace and that you live by faith and confidence in a God who extends grace to you, You need to also know that one of the reasons God saved you, one of the reasons God loves you and works with you as He does is because He wants you to be a living, breathing example in a world that is so messed up about God and so messed up about faith. They've seen people who claim to be Christians, but they weren't. They know people that claim to love God, but they don't. And it messes with their head. And so when I or somebody else says, you need to give your life to Jesus, you need to become a follower of Jesus Christ, they go, wait a minute, I I don't know what you mean. I know this guy, he's supposed to be a Christian, but he, he lives the same way I do. So it's not so much that we talk about grace. We need to see grace at work in our life. We need to go to work and go to school. We need to go back to our houses and be living examples of who Jesus is to people who are trying to figure out whether it's worth it or not. It's so easy to come to church and just put it on. It's so easy to just act like a Christian. But there is more to being a follower of Jesus than just going to church. Paul's going to talk about that. 
Five questions. They'll be on the screen. These are five questions that I want us to answer as we go through this sermon series over the next number of weeks. Five of these five questions. Number one, how does my commitment to Jesus Christ affect the people around me and those who know me? Are people better because they know you? Are people more likely to follow Jesus because they know you? That's the question. Are people who know me more attracted to Jesus? Or are they more confused about what it means to be a Christian because of my life in front of them? Number three, how much should we allow the world and the culture around us to affect the way we believe and live? Number four, how much of Scripture informs the way that we treat one another, interact with one another, raise our children, spend our money? How much is the Scripture influencing the way that you're living? When you're making the decisions of life, are you reading the Word of God? I've heard Shelly because I'm on the other side just listening when Shelly's coaching some of you and I will hear Shelly say this. Have you prayed about this? Have you read your Bible about this? Are you seeking the counsel of God about this decision? Because it matters. And I say this with all the love that one pastor can have because I do love you. Some of you, the mess that you're in is because you're making decisions without talking to God first. You're making choices about your life without looking into God's Word to say, what does God want me to do with my life, with my money, with my relationships? Because of that, because we have gone our own way, because we have decided to live our life according to the way we want to live it, We find ourselves a mess. Question number five. When scripture conflicts with modern thoughts and ideas, how do I most often respond? Anybody familiar with the theologian Taylor Swift? One of the great theologians of our time. I'm going to confess, although some of you will not have any problem believing this, I don't know that I knew one song Taylor Swift ever recorded. I knew who she was, but I, you know, if she's not been on the Gaither videos, I've probably never seen her. (laughs) But I hear these kids over here talking about Taylor Swift. I saw the buzz about the new national tour she started, you know, how hard it was to get a ticket how people, you know, little girls on TV were crying because they've been saving their money for a year to get a ticket to hear Taylor Swift. So Shelly had me out somewhere, as she does from time to time, and she's got me sitting in the car while she's doing whatever it is she's doing, and I'm just waiting. So I thought, okay, I'll just find me a Taylor Swift song, and I'll just listen to Taylor Swift.
And I'm thinking, and I'm not just singling her out, but if you just listen to a steady diet of Taylor Swift, that's why you're making the choices that you're making. Because it's a me first world. It's what I want. It's what I need. And the rest of it can just go wherever it wants to go. I make the rules. I was listening to one of those songs. Basically she's saying, I'm going to make my own rules and you can just deal with that. And it's the world that we live in. It's the world. And and I'm not preaching against Taylor Swift. I'm just saying that the challenge the world is, the church is in is that the Taylor Swift theology won't work with the gospel. And at some point your life has got to be built on something more solid because the winds are blowing and the storms are coming. And the only way you're going to make it is if you know what the Word of God says. That's why 1 Corinthians is so important. So in the short time that I have left, I want to give you four impressions that I get out of this passage Susan read to us. And I'll do them very quickly. They're not going to take very long. There's four of them. We'll talk at length about some of this later. But just to get us going, here's four, four things that come out of Acts chapter 18. Here's the first one. The mission of God is worth sacrifice. Verse 1, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth where he met Aquila, a a Jewish man from from Pontus. Not long after this, Aquila had come, not long before this, Aquila had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Emperor Claudius had ordered the Jewish people to leave Rome. Paul went to see Aquila and Priscilla, found out they were tent makers. Paul was also a tent maker, so he stayed with them and they worked together. One thing that you learn about the Apostle Paul is that he had one mission in life. He just had one mission, and that was to make sure that every human being on the face of the earth was exposed to the gospel and the story of Jesus. He wasn't trying to become a notable pastor or preacher. He wasn't trying to be known to the world. He wasn't trying to gain money. In fact, the reason I read that to you is because he was a tent maker. He was a bivocational pastor. He worked a secular job in the marketplace, but his passion, his heart, he made tents for a living, but that was not his passion. His passion was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make sure that every man, every boy, every girl, every woman knew that Jesus existed. And because Jesus existed, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation. Let me show this to you. It'll be on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. Paul writes this to the Roman church. He says, I am a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians, both the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready. Everybody say ready. It's the same root word that we get the English word fire. So what he's telling you is I am on fire to preach the gospel. I'm so eager. I'm so excited. I can't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God, salvation for everyone that believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. In other words, what I need you to understand is that nothing else mattered to Paul except preaching the gospel. Why? Because he said it. 
He said the gospel is the only means by which lost people are going to be saved. Lost people in Lake County are not going to be saved by programs. They're not going to be saved by buildings or money or anything else. They're going to be saved because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be a church that is so consumed with lost people that the gospel is the thing that matters most. Lost people must matter. They matter to God and they must matter to Lake Erie Church. Nothing else matters. In fact, I love the way he writes in chapter 2. He tells them, listen, when I came to preach to you, and I'm paraphrasing this. He said, when I came to preach to you, I didn't come with eloquent eloquent words. I wasn't the best speaker you ever heard. I wasn't the most personable person. He said, I knew nothing among you. I didn't come with an agenda except one thing, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your confidence would not be in me or in anybody else, but only in Jesus. We're going to find out in a few few weeks here that this church at Corinth was so riddled with people who said, I'm from this pastor and I'm with this pastor and I'm with this pastor. And Paul said, you don't get it. Pastors don't matter. Only Jesus matters. Whoever your pastor is, make Jesus the focus of your church. Make Jesus the most important thing that you do. And if Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. The mission of God is worth sacrificing. Second of all, not everybody is going to agree with what you believe. We've talked about this at length. I won't, be, I won't say a lot here, but look at verse 4. Every Sabbath, Paul went to the synagogue. He spoke to Jews and Gentiles and tried to win them over. After Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, he spent all of his time preaching to the Jews about Jesus the Messiah. Finally, they turned against him, insulted him. So he shook the dust from his clothes and told them, whatever happens to you will be your fault. I am not to blame. From now on, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. There's no easy way to say this, so hold on. Could get bumpy. Sometimes people don't want to hear about Jesus. Sometimes people have been exposed to things that turn them off to the message of Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love them, pray for them, and wait for the Holy Spirit to open up their hearts. Maybe you have an unsaved husband, an unsaved wife or children that are lost without God. You're not going to force them to accept Jesus unless you're Alexis Welch. Alexis tells a great story about one of her children one time who said, I don't love Jesus. And she just popped him really good and said, oh, yes, in this house we love Jesus. And I think he does, by the way. I'm pretty sure he does. I'm not sure if he loves him because of Jesus, because he's afraid of his mama, but one reason or another, he loved Jesus. So here's two prayers I'm going to encourage you to pray. Because not everybody's going to believe, not everybody's going to want to hear about Jesus. Here's what you can pray. It's a prayer I pray almost every day of my life. Lord, lead me to somebody today that needs you. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in the town where you live. 
He's at work in Painesville. He's at work in Thompson. He's at work in Minner. He's at work in Willoughby. And the Holy Spirit is at work. And if we are led by the Holy Spirit, we will be led to people who are open to the story of Jesus. On your job, Lord, lead me today to somebody that needs you. When you guys go back to school this fall, lead me to somebody today that needs you. Help me to be sitting at the lunch table with somebody who needs you. Help me to be in the right spot with somebody that needs you. I've seen that happen since I've been your pastor. Conversations that I've had. Somebody would say, hey, would you, you, know, would you talk to my father? Would you talk to my brother? You know, whatever. And, and you just get to a place and you realize they're open. They're open. Lord, lead me to somebody today that needs you. Second of all, Lord, help me be sensitive, spiritually sensitive to what you're doing around me here. I prayed that prayer in John Eagle the other morning. I was walking through, picking up a few things, and I said, Lord, help me be sensitive to what's going on in this grocery store spiritually. I rounded the corner and ran into a woman. Open. Open. Not everybody's going to believe, but that doesn't mean that we stop preaching the gospel. We love people. We love them where they are. There may be people out there doing stuff that causes you to just be revolted by what they're doing, but love them. Love them. And wait for the Lord to open their heart. Third thing I want to tell you that this passage is found in verse 6, that God sometimes saves the most unusual people. I just found this so fascinating, verse 6. So he leaves the synagogue and says, okay, you guys are on your own. I'm not messing with you anymore. I'm going to Gentiles. Verse 6. Paul then moved in the house of a man named Titus Judas, or Titus Justice, who worshiped the Lord and lived next door to the synagogue. In other words, he had a house right next door to the church. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. So in other words, the place they just threw Paul out of, Crispus was the leader. He and everyone in his family put their faith in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard the message and all the people had faith, that had faith in the Lord were baptized. You, you know what's remarkable to me there is how God saves the most unusual people. Now if you were looking over that synagogue and there had this riot, this uproar and they're kicking Paul out, would you have thought the leader of the synagogue would be the first convert? No. no. Think about the reprisals and the rebuke and the public that he's going to get. They've hired him to be the leader of the synagogue. I guarantee you he was fired the next day. Because God saves unusual people. You know how I know that's true? Look at the person next to you. God saved them. How unusual is that? And the next time you're in front of a mirror, look at yourself. God saves unusual people. Saul of Tarsus, the guy that was persecuting the church, the guy that wrote this letter, he had letters of authority. He was going to arrest every believer of Jesus he could find. God said, no, you're not. I'm saving you. I'm putting you on the mission field. Because your heart is passionate about God, but you don't understand that God in the form of Jesus Christ has already been here. And you're going to be a witness of him. God saved him in a very unusual way. 
I want to show you this. I think this will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do we have that one up there? If it's not, I'll just read it to you. Paul says this. We're going to get into this in a couple of weeks. This is a powerful chapter, but he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he's trying to correct something. It's a little out of context for you if you don't have the full chapter. But he's telling them, listen, you get it through your head that the unrighteous of this world are never going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Watch this. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or extortioners will ever inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this. But such were some of you. Paul said, unrighteousness is not going to inherit heaven. You're not going to live as a sinner and go to heaven. You're not going to walk away from God's principles. You're not going to violate God's law and still get to live in heaven. But he said, all of you were once that kind of person. All of you. All you members at Corinth. All you house church folk at Corinth. All of you were at some time an unrighteous person. But you have been washed You have been cleansed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You understand what I'm saying? Paul wants you to understand that all of us stand here today unworthy of God's grace, but thank God we're saved. Thank God we've been redeemed. Thank God that Jesus did not hold us accountable for our own sin but paid his own life as the ransom. And the story can be said about Lake Erie Church, such were some of you. But God had mercy on you. Why do I say that? Prophetically. Not to bring glory to myself, but prophetically I announce that you're going to start seeing God save people in our church that you would not have imagined God could save. People who have spoken out and have gone against God's word and have presented themselves in opposition to the Lord. People who said God didn't exist. People who said there is no God. God is redeeming them and they are coming home by the power of God. You say, oh, you don't know about my boy. Yeah, I do. I know a God who will reach your boy. I know a God who will save your daughter. I know a God who will bring your father back. I know a God who will restore your broken marriage because there isn't anybody that Jesus will not save. I don't know if I'm supposed to be this excited on Sunday morning, but I feel something in my heart. Your lost children are coming home. Your family's going to be restored. God is going to give you back what the enemy stole because God is at work in this world. Woo! Hallelujah. Somebody that's glad to be saved, lift up your hand to the Lord today. I'm glad that I'm saved this morning. Woo! I feel a running spirit and I'm not a runner. 
Woo, hallelujah. I'm glad that Calvary saved me. I'm glad the blood of Jesus washed me clean. I'm glad to be a part of a church that declares that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, and the living God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Here's the, Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Here's the last one. I'm done. Susan read it. It's in verse 10. Paul's there trying to build that church. And that night he had a dream. And he heard the voice of the Lord say, don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be silent. Speak out. I am with you and you will not be harmed. There are many people in this city who belong to me. I was driving yesterday. I felt like the Lord spoke into my heart this thought. You know why the devil's always telling some of you you're alone? Because you're not. That's why he's telling you you're alone. You're not alone. The Jesus team has a lot of members on it. And the devil is a liar. We're not the only church that loves Jesus. We're not the only crowd that's working for the Lord. There's an army in this city. There's an army in your neighborhood. There's an army of people. You may not know it. You may not know who they are. But God has people all over this place that love Him. And you are not alone. It's going to be a great series. So let me finish by saying you this. Answering this question. What is the takeaway today of what you've heard? What's the takeaway? Just two things. Number one, don't ever give up on somebody that's lost. Don't ever give up on somebody that's lost. There's over 500 names in that glass jar right over there on the edge of that stage of people that you put on a card, laid that card in my hand. We pray over those cards. We believe God is saving lost people. Don't ever give up on people that are lost because God is saving lost people he's saving lost people how many of you have somebody in your life right now that's lost that you want God to save hold up your hand right there right now let's just pray a prayer right where you're standing right where you're sitting right there father in the name of Jesus I pray right now over every lost life that's represented by somebody who has their hand raised. I pray right now, holy God, over every life right now. I'm calling sons and daughters home. I'm calling those lost people home. 
I'm calling them. From Calvary's cross, we're calling. He's calling them today. Come home. Come home, daughter. Come home, son. Come home, husband. Come home, wife. Here's the last one. Don't ever give up on lost people, but always be aware of the life that you're living in front of unbelievers. You're going to be dismissed here in five minutes or so, ten minutes. You're going to go back out into a hostile world. Jesus said you are the light of the city. This world's dark if you're not there. You're the light of the city. You're the difference maker in your house. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. When you are the only one in your house serving the Lord. Some of you students. Nobody in your house is serving the Lord. And it's hard. Some of you depend on your parents to let you come. Sometimes you don't come and you'll say, well, my parents wouldn't bring me. I get it. I get it. It's hard. Jesus said, you're the light in your house. You're the difference maker. Live the kind of life that glorifies Jesus in front of unbelievers. Be sensitive to what you say. Be careful with your words. Because it matters. The mission of God is worth the sacrifice. It's probably my life verse. You've heard me use it many times, but I thought it was a great way to close out this message today. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a trustworthy statement and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of His great patience with even the worst sinners. What is He saying? He's saying, my life is that example that people see that if God could save me, He could save them. Then they would realize also that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Now we invite you to visit one of our services soon. For more information, please visit us at lakeeriechurch.com.